what this is doing is, first of all, it's putting the farm workers at grave risk, but now you're also creating the conditions for all these hidden outbreaks um, in rural areas, you know, which of course have also in the last 15 years been uh, completely decimated in terms of rural health care. Um, so it's not a pretty picture, but at the same time, we did talk to farm workers who are fighting this, who are advocating for their rights, including undocumented farm workers who are speaking out against, um, uh, farmers who are not providing them with PPE, um, who are not providing them with a proper education, who won't, uh, guarantee that they'll have sick leave or pay if they get infected. Um, so, you know, it's very important that we don't just see these farm workers as vic- uh, as victims because a lot of them are very outspoken and and demanding their rights despite you know all the risk to them Punch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome. Boy, we're living in exciting and dangerous and troubling and all kinds of adjectives to describe these times. Uh, We're living through history. I think we all understand that to some extent. And it's all the more critical that as we do, We support the independent media outlets that we trust to provide the kind of critical analysis that we need to make sense of all of this madness. Counterpunch really is one of those. Counterpunch needs your support, as always. If you agree with the importance of supporting Counterpunch, please do consider becoming a subscriber. Uh, We're finishing up the fun drive. It's probably over by the time you're hearing this, but I will just ask you to make a donation through the PayPal or get a subscription. You'll have access to the new subscriber-only content coming in July, and it's also a great way to keep a very important media project going. Also, just as a side note, you can find my other work at my Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Eric Dreitzer. Podcasts, articles, commentaries, a whole lot more stuff, including, if I remember correctly, an interview with this guy who's on the show with me this week. He's a friend of the show. He's one of America's truly greatest journalists, in my opinion. Arun Gupta is back with us. Arun is, uh, as I said, a very important journalist to be following. His work is all 
all over the place. Washington Post, Daily Beast, Raw Story, Intercept, The Nation, and of course, our humble little corner here at Counterpunch. Um, he is working on a long-term project that is very exciting, a book entitled Bacon as a Weapon of Mass Destruction, a junk food loving chef's inquiry into taste. And now the exciting project on Instagram, Apocalypse Chow, Cooking in End Times. Wonderful, wonderful recipes to see there as well from a great chef. Arun Gupta, welcome back to the show. So good to be with you, Eric. And if I may return, you know, the admiration, you're really one of the people that I always uh, look to in terms of what your take is on a situation because you're consistently insightful saying things no one else is. Thanks for that, Arun. And uh, right back at you. So, I mean, as I said in the intro there, we all understand that we're living through a historically important moment. I think that's one of the unique things about this is I think we're all cognizant of it. So I'm just going to start there. I mean, in the last 48, 72 hours, Arun, we've seen tremendous developments. We've seen protests all over the country. We've seen protests uh, in D.C. right up against the fence of the White House. We've seen tear gassing. We've seen quasi-declaration of martial law, a somewhat call to arms for fascist militias from the president of the United States. Give me your initial analysis of all of this. I think from a historical perspective, the way we sum it up is Donald Trump is uh, bringing the war on terror home. You know, we don't talk about the war on terror, but basically everything that he's doing, we can see that uh, George uh, Bush did uh, in the 2000s and and uh, to a lesser degree, Obama did in terms of, you know, uh, stoking these uh, conflicts the way that the U.S. Uh, essentially stoked a civil war within uh, Iraqi society. Of course, there were these fault lines, just like there are these you know, racial and, and class uh, fault lines in America. But we took these fault lines and, and essentially turned it into the civil war that both involved religion, but was also very much about, you know, class in terms of who controlled the resources of, of the Iraqi state. But, you know, Trump's governing strategy, if we look at it, and he he told us very from the very beginning who we were, the problem was the media uh, wouldn't uh, believe their own lying eyes. You know, that he was going to sow division, he was going to sow group hatred, he was going to use chaos as a tool of governance. So, you know, that moment in 2015, from the very beginning, you know, Mexican immigrants are rapists, drug dealers, and criminals. You know, he made it clear exactly what uh, he was going to do. And then, you know, throughout the campaign, I want a Muslim ban. We're going to create uh, a Muslim registry. We're going to round up and deport uh, millions of immigrants. You know, he's making it clear we're going to uh, uh, do ethnic cleansing. Um, and then on the other side, it's all about this uh, ethno-nationalist state, right? Make America great again is just a code for make America white again. Again, his campaign was explicit about it. On their website, they had information about how we're going to get uh, immigration uh, back uh, to the historic uh, lows, uh, which would mean getting rid of half the immigrants uh, in this country. And it's just like, you know, you can deport about if you if you rounded up every undocumented immigrant, maybe you could get rid of 
20, 25%, how do you get rid of the rest? Well, you know, there's the Muslim bans, the refugee bans, but they have also been trying to actually strip um, immigrants of, of citizenship, uh, as we know. You know, so this was really chaos uh, was a strategy. So when we fast forward uh, to 2020, it's really, in one way, no one could predict this. Like, right, you know, I, I don't think uh, there's a novelist, a, a writer alive who, who could have just whipped up uh, this insanity um, that we're seeing. And as I was thinking of that show, that um, uh, fictional show that came out on the BBC uh, last year called Years and Years, uh, if folks saw it, it's, it's a six-part series. It's not very good, in my opinion. It tries to project out what happens in a 15-year time span as, like, British society, like, completely starts a fragment, and you have this Trump-like character uh, who comes to power and is stoking hatred and, you know, ethnic strife. And the thing is, what they imagine in 15 years does not even uh, uh, come close to what we've seen in just the last few months, right? You know, if, if Trump is all about making America great again, well, you know, we've got the uh, civil unrest of the urban unrest of the 1960s. We've got the economic collapse of the 1930s. We've got the great pandemic of, of World War One. You, you've got these like fascist clowns, the book Boogaloo boys and all these other militias who are, are trying to uh, stoke a, a civil war. And, you know, and then you have uh, essentially this kind of like clansmen in, in, in chief just creating these like, like sadistic buffoonish moments such as attacking uh, his own people just for, uh, to have a sword and cross photo op which is basically something out of you know early 20th century european fascism indeed and so one has to wonder what the utility of all of this is because on the one hand it seems to have backfired tremendously if you look at the if you look at the reactions from some people publicly but then you have to start to ask yourself think about all of the other times that things have seemed to have backfired on Trump and you have to wonder did it backfire was this a, was this a misread on his part in terms of what he could accomplish with the military and so forth or is there something more to this strategy room well, I mean, you know, it's, it's uh, yes, you, you can see things backfire on Trump because he'll immediately start to backpedal and he'll be like, it was a joke or it's the fake news, you know, so with the, like, you know, when he was uh, saying that let's eject disinfectants, I mean, it's just like, you know, there is this dichotomy to Trump. He is, in a way, a, an absolute genius. He's the biggest narcissist and the most malignant narcissist in, in human history. Um, but he is this genius at man manipulation, at like psychological terrorism. Um, but he has no book learning or, or erudition. So he, he just says the craziest shit. Like, hey, why don't we use a nuclear bomb to stop a hurricane um, where he actually proposed that or you know or why don't we like you know uh, inject uh, like bleach and Lysol into people to clear their lungs out of uh, uh, COVID-19 and when he becomes a laughing stock then he's just like this is a fake news that that was just a joke and 
and you know so with like uh uh this attacking um uh, his own people or the the looting and shooting right that was the same thing what he tweeted out it just like this is the fake news is you know i i was just talking about what might happen i wasn't threatening anyone where he clearly threw fuel on the fire this is what caused the the protests uh to explode around the country but you know in in a way to me what's kind of interesting is is i mean I think what a lot of people don't get is, I mean, this guy is clearly, he is a fascist in every single way. Now, the, he's bumbling, incompetent, and clownish, right? But bumbling, incompetent, and clownish fascism is still fascism. Um, so, you know, when he deploys the military, when they have military helicopters being used ag against American citizens where they're, like, dropping to... Uh, tree level to create you know so much turbulence to scatter people um this is you know like third world uh, dictatorship stuff uh that we're seeing coming out of them and then they immediately try and walk it back like and you know like now they're trying to blame it on bar where it's just like yeah it's just like it's a bar came up with this idea this is of course um all of trump's uh uh doing um so he does constantly overreach, but I think what's disturbing is like how he keeps recovering. And, and it's just like America is a country that is just completely gone off the rails that, you know, I think like about at least one third of this society is basically insane. Um, Oh, there's no doubt about that. I, I, one third is, is, is mighty optimistic. Yeah. <laughs> But that being said, uh, we do see a we do see something happening here. Look, um, you've you've been around you've been around activism and social justice work long enough to know the difference between a momentary blip and something that might have the potential to fundamentally alter the political calculus. And it does seem that we're going through something uh, that's more akin to the latter. You have corporate boards issuing emails to tens of thousands of employees about white supremacy and about understanding the, you know, uh, empathy and all of these type of things, whether that's relevant or not, I, I, you know, it's neither here nor there, but the fact that this is permeating through society and the fact that Trump has, as you said, thrown gasoline on the fire has in many ways forced a conversation, uh, to be had in just the last few days. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. So let me try and do this real quick because I don't want to digress too much because I've been having variations on this exact conversation. So I think it's a great point that you raised. Sure, we're, we're having conversations. Individual attitudes do matter. Having these difficult discussions, but racism is not rooted in the attitudes that's not we have to look at the political economy of this and what they're rooted in is the interrelation between private property and policing and so the way i i i if i let me just give this one quick anecdote i was at this party out on long island total like kind of like lower income 100 percent white working class neighborhood some people i knew 
neighbor runs over all agitated because there's a a house for sale and an African-American couple came by to look at it. And he starts ranting about how, you know, he's going to make sure they never live in the neighborhood. And if he has to buy the house, he's going to buy it himself before he lets them move it into the neighborhood. Let's them. And of course, you know, he would be like, I'm not a, a racist, but what the racism is like structured in is that's like there is this perception and you can be you know the most like you know woke white person but there's this perception if an african-american moves into your neighborhood the property value is going to go down and you can say i don't think that way but you know i know some of my neighbors do and there's studies that show and i don't remember what the number is but i think it's about 15 to 20 percent when the when a white middle-class neighborhood gets about 15 to 20 percent african-american middle-class homeowners it almost flips in an instant to all African-American because there starts to be this perception. And, you know, I believe this is also, I might be wrong, but this is what blockbusting is um, that real estate agents do, uh, where they actually try to uh, drive down uh, uh, the values um, of, of homes uh, by playing on the perception Um uh, that, you know, it's going to become an African-American neighborhood. Uh, so uh, then they can buy it on the cheap and then sell it back on inflated places to the African-Americans because people's economic lives are completely rooted in the value of home, both forwards for going forward in their lives and then going to their descendants' lives, right? So your home is just like... That's how you, year to year, you take your nice trips, right? You get your home equity lines because the value is increasing. It's going to be your retirement savings. If something happens to you, you know, you can essentially sell the home and go into a nursing home or, you know, use the money to pay for uh, long-term health care, get a reverse mortgage or second equity line. Plus, that value of your home is also, that's what you give, you know, to kids to pay for the marriage, to put a down payment on their home for college education uh, for them. And this is why, you know, the destruction of black wealth under Obama uh, was is, is so significant, uh, the destruction of housing wealth for African-Americans, um, which was the greatest in, in U.S. history under Obama. So this is how racism is reproduced. And you can be the most non-racist person but you are incentivized to be completely racist because you're like, well, you know, I'm not racist, but, you know, if you think some of your neighbors are, and everyone, of course, thinks some of their na white neighbors are racist, then you're going to be like, yeah, maybe if they're black people moving into my neighborhood, we need to move out of this neighborhood. And the quality of the schools are going to go down because once the property values go down, then that's less money um, for the schools. And so we can have all these memos, we can have all these conversations that we like, but if we don't get at the root of this, and the other side of this is the policing, right? You know, where we saw with, um, what was her name? Amy Cooper in Central Park, that white people treat police like their own personal concierge service to keep uh, black people in line, 
right? So the police are there to like police black people in suburban areas to keep them, you know, you don't belong here type thing. Um, uh, you know, and uh, if if any black person is seen as 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 being uppity, you know, white people will, will call the cops. That's why we have all these videos in you know the last you know four or five years, like barbecue uh, uh, Becky or or permit Patty or golf cut cart Gale. And, you know, the whole... The I whole, love golf cart Gale. <laughs> the whole, you know, and it's just like, that's why we see video. It's This has always been going on, just like police killings. It's just now with the uh, the fact that everyone has a, a high-tech, high-quality surveillance and recording device in, in their pocket, we can start to actually capture a few of these moments that start to be like, hey, this is a pervasive problem. But we're still not getting at what the real root of the problem is. And if we're going to like really um, just get at the foundations of racism, we have to do away with private homeownership, right? We need to completely get rid of, we need to have social housing and we need to stop basing schools um, uh, being based on property value. I mean, first of all, that should be unconstitutional. That is not... uh, 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 equal protection, um, you know, under the law, you know, when we are depriving all these children um, of, of a, a, a decent education just because the property values where they live tend to be low. Um, so, yeah, sure, let's have this conversation, you know, but we're, we're, we're not going to change it without addressing the political economy of racism in this country. Now that is the kind of answer that warms my Marxist heart (laughs) in material terms in this way. No, absolutely. I think that's, I think that's very well said. And speaking of, um, ticking time bombs of racial discrimination that intersect with economic and other issues. Um, I really appreciated your your most recent piece, Arun. I would uh, direct everybody to, in these times, headline, The Food Industry's Next COVID-19 Victims, Migrant Farm Workers. Excellent piece uh, you co-authored with Michelle Fawcett. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, some of the research that you did, what you found about what's going on uh, with the migrant farm workers workers in the pandemic. Yeah, so you know, uh, everyone's familiar with the, there's been these outbreak in uh, meat processing plants across the country. Over 100 plants, uh, scores of deaths, uh, something like over 15,000 uh, infections. It's a workforce of I believe uh, somewhere around a half million workers. And this is a heavy, heavily Latino uh, workforce, some undocumented, but, you know, mainly illegal immigrants and, and U.S. citizens. And what it turns out is, one, you have a workforce that is has really limited uh, rights in, in a lot of ways. Sure, there are unions in, in some areas, but this is an industry where there's been massive consolidation, uh, speed up, de-skilling. And uh, so people don't really feel like they have a, a right to, to protest the conditions. You know, there's just all these stories like, you know, if people like say something, if the workers say something, the supervisors, or if you don't like it, we'll replace you, right? You know, often the meat processing plants almost always tend to be in low-income rural areas where there are not a lot of jobs. They 
they pay semi-decently, you know, better than uh, the Walmart. And, you know, there is a bit of unionization. Um, so you might get, you know, some benefits. Maybe you're getting paid like $13, $14, $15 an hour in some rural area in Iowa where the mi minimum wage is still $7.25 an hour. So there it's it's the working conditions, you know, but the reason I bring the, the social stuff into it, because you, we got to remember, if the workers had rights and were able to exercise them, we wouldn't see such terrible working conditions. So when it's cold, um, that you can't do anything about, right? You know, um, you have to keep a meat processing plant cold, but the coronavirus thrives in, in cold areas. Now, what you could do stuff about is the workers work shoulder to shoulder, you know, they're packed in tightly. Um, it's high speed. Uh, they're expected to just like churn out like tons of uh, uh, meat products um, every day. So they're working uh, very hard. They're breathing heavily. They're exerting. Uh, I, then you also have like these, you know, aggressive ventilation systems that are just, you know, swirling uh, uh, the air all, all around. And so you have meat processing plants where there's like 700 workers um, who are in, infected, so they become these hotspots. Now, with farms, it's the living conditions that are making them the hotspots. So uh, farm workers, obviously, they're, they're working in the field. Often they are also working shoulder to shoulder because if you've been on a modern farm, you know, the rows are, are every inch of space is maximized. And so the people who are picking your your strawberries and, and lettuce, you know, they're just a couple of feet away from each other. And then you have like, I mean, the way farming is now you basically you have these factory machines uh, that are in the field where they have like these complete bagging stations as this machine is slowly moving through the field you know at like one mile and at one or two miles an hour as people as the workers are like uh, harvesting the lettuce and then you have all these um, other workers who are like bagging it up right there you know it's all highly it both depends on a lot of physical manual labor and at the same time is highly automated the real problem is, is so we have 2.5 million farm workers, a high proportion of them are migrant farm workers. So they travel with har from harvest to harvest. Now about 10% of them are H2A workers. So these are workers who come in from out of the country, they're bought in um, by farmers. And uh, uh, they live in really just, uh, really shitty conditions. Um, you know, there's uh, something like, uh, so North Carolina, for instance, uh, by law, they only need to have 50 square feet of uh, space per farm worker. So my bedroom in New York City, is like 200 square feet, you know, and it's like, it's decent. It's not huge. And I'm like, you're telling me that four people could live in this bedroom? And, you know, they only have to have like one shower head and one toilet, right? Uh, one shower head for 10 workers, one toilet for 15 workers. But then you get this situation where the showers and, and toilets look like they're out of a prison because you'll just see like this concrete like box with like three or four shower heads or another concrete box with like, you know, four or five toilets all just lined up uh, next to each other. So they pack them in in these tight conditions, and this is what is causing the spread of coronavirus. Now, with the farm slave, workers... Slave quarters. 
it's 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 pretty it's pretty bad yeah yeah um and so estimates range from you know the i believe it's either you i think it's a usda estimates 48 percent of these 2.5 million farm workers are undocumented but farm worker advocacy groups think that it could be up to 70 percent or more who are undocumented and remember these we're also often talking people who've been living in the u.s 10 or 20 30 years even if they're undocumented so um they uh, live in these conditions, and but because they're undocumented, um, they're very afraid of getting fired, right? You know, they have virtually the Supreme Court like gives undocumented workers almost no rights uh, w- within the workplace, and has legalized the firing of uh, undocumented workers agitating for union, uh, you know, uh, their rights. Like the Supreme Court has outright said, yeah, that's per- perfectly legal, that you're not protected. Uh, you know, not that uh, workers have much uh, protection in the first place, right? Even though it's illegal to fire workers for protected union activity, tens of thousands of uh, workers every year are still fired because of this. So they're afraid if they get infected, they're going to lose their job. So they're dis- and, you know, then on top of this is all the cultural issues, right? Um, they don't speak Spanish. A lot of undocumented farm workers particularly H-2A workers, uh, Spanish is a second language for them, right? They're Mayan, they, they, so they speak some sort of like Mayan, like Quechua or, or Mom or some other language. So they may not even be fluent in, in Spanish. Um, so this be- gets a huge becomes a huge barrier to even educating them about, you know, here's how you protect yourself, getting them information about testing. You know, you have in these rural areas drive-up clinics, but what good does that do? You know, these undocumented workers, they don't have a car. Often um, their cell phone is, you know, uh, by the minute. Uh, a lot of uh, these um testing uh, facilities, I think virtually all of them uh, require documentation. They say you need an ID to get tested. And it's just like, okay, you're creating all these barriers, even if they did want to get tested, even if they did want to get tested. But then there's other factors that disincentivize them even to get tested. Because um, one is the fear if they get tested, they'll get fired. If you get fired, you lose your job, you can you lose your housing. If you're an H-2A worker, that means you'll be deported, you'll be sent back to your country, and you can you'll fear getting blacklisted. And then understandably, there's also like other members of the crew uh, don't want to have, you know, there's discrimination if you get tested because they're afraid of getting infected or they are, they're afraid they'll lose their jobs. So one farm worker advocate actually told us, and this is, this term is what the advocates are using, not the farm workers, but they said that the farm workers are forming death packs. Because, and what that means is they're not going to reveal they have an infection um, uh, because they don't want everyone else to get fired on their crew. So maybe they'll just try to tough it out or maybe they'll they'll just quit and try and uh, go elsewhere. Um, but what this is doing is, first of all, it's putting the farm workers at grave risk, but now you're also creating the conditions for all these hidden outbreaks um, in rural areas, you know, which of course have also in the last 15 years been uh, completely decimated in terms of rural health care. 
Um, so it's not a pretty picture. But at the same time, we did talk to farm workers who are fighting this, who are advocating for their rights, including undocumented farm workers who are speaking out against um, uh, farmers who are not providing them with PPE, um, who are not providing them with a proper education, who won't uh, guarantee that they'll have sick leave or pay if they get infected. Um, so, you know, it's very important that we don't just see these farm workers as, vic- uh, as victims because a lot of them are very outspoken and, and demanding their rights despite, you know, all the risks to them. We have to go to break, but before we do, just to finish this point, because I think it's important that in addition to the grave danger that they're being put in by virtue of what you described, I think correctly, as these sort of hidden outbreaks, is the fact that these people are already at grave risk by virtue of the work that they do. A lot of them already come down with respiratory conditions uh, because of the pesticides, because of the working conditions within which they're, you know, uh, basically working whatever it is, six, seven, eight months a year. Now, I'll add to that this respiratory uh, disease, COVID, you see, I, I think what we could end up seeing is not only these hidden outbreaks, but we could end up seeing hidden death tolls that are going to be uh, completely ignored because it's simply not going to be recognized yeah, as such. Yeah, and and I do want to, you know, uh, just also point out in um, so we we documented. Um, outbreaks in uh, upstate New York, uh, where I, I know you're you're just north of the city, but in the Finger Lakes region, um, there's been outbreaks at a dairy farm, at a nursery, at a greenhouse. Uh, 170 workers, half the workforce, uh, were uh, tested positive because the uh, secondary contract labor was housing them four to a motel room, two to a bed. Um, and the workforce came, uh, was from Mexico and uh, Haiti, five, at least five farms in North Carolina. Um, their farms uh, in Florida uh, with the coalition of Immokalee workers where there's all these uh, workers who are testing positive. I've heard of reports in Tennessee that on the West Coast, um, a lot of it is also you'll find that various rural counties um, are not reporting specific farms, but they'll say like, you know, 40% of infections are among farm workers. So obviously there's big, big outbreaks like Monterey uh, uh, County in California, which is uh, the Salinas uh, uh, Valley, which is um, uh, uh, the Johns uh, East of Eden. Um, the John Steinbeck novel is about the, the Salinas Valley where he grew up. Um, uh, so there's been like a lot of infections there in Woodburn, Oregon. Um, it's the epicenter of the infections in the state. It's a farm worker region in the Yakima Valley. Now in Washington, where something I think like half the apple crop in the U.S. comes from, or at least comes from Washington state, um, there've been all these outbreaks in the fruit packing houses. But what's great there is that there have been all these strikes as well. So, you know, um, so if you just Google like Yakima, um, you know, farm worker strikes, you'll find articles about all the strikes that are going on there. So it's important that we recognize, you know, that they're they're really fighting for their rights and need your support. So, you know, but check out the article and we're going to have more reports coming at it in these times uh, on, on uh, the farm workers. And, you know, this is this may end up rippling through the food chain. You know, just as we're seeing 
these uh, uh, shortages uh, with the uh, meats, uh, we may start to see shortages with various types of uh, fruits and vegetables uh, in the next few months. No one's going to starve, but you know, you might end up uh, eating a lot of like uh, bread and peanut butter. They'll pry their kumquats from my cold dead hand, Arun. Um, all right, let's take a break. Um, on the other side of the break, I want to talk a bit more about um, another important issue that you've posted, I think, on social media about, but I think it's worth discussing for our audience. Um, so stick with us on the other side of the break. We'll continue with Arun Gupta. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. Revolution come quick up laugh, love, fucking drink liquor, and help make a revolution. I'm here to laugh, love, fucking drink liquor, and help the damn revolution come quick up laugh, love, fucking drink liquor, and maybe make a revolution. Now the same finna end in fisticuffs But if you guys too, go ahead, twist it up That's your job finna make you piss and cuss Make you have to hustle rent with your pistols up Now if Uncle Sam Bama's in his murder gang We gon' rise out the ash like that bird of flame Hoping you take action from the word I bring But if the police ask, you never heard my name Five years old, eyelids half mask Bedtime is 8 p.m., it's half past Try to take me to bed, I make the mad dash Scared in my sleep, I miss what had passed Quarter century later, I'm still not sleeping If I'm not involved, I feel like I ain't if I can't change the world, I ain't leaving, baby. That's the same reason you should call me to see you. Laugh, love, fucking drink liquor, and help the damn revolution come quicker. Laugh, love, fucking drink liquor, and help make a revolution. I'm here to laugh, love, fucking drink liquor, and help the damn revolution come quicker. Laugh, love, fucking drink liquor. And maybe make a revolution I'm finna take shots and make a mark Not just take shots and make us mark That's how they make us marks We got dry to see the whole system break apart We finna drive to the lake and park Before we start, here's a club smelling like sweat, rum and perfume She letting out whoops cause they playing her tune If we could, we would stay here till it turn noon Till the sky we exist and resume it's Millennium 3, we collar them cup. It's a world conversation, I'm hollering stuff Like we done wallow them up and squallowing up Who's the culprit? Follow the buck, I'm just following up Cause like me, you got to be in the middle of it Unraveling the riddle of it And to do that, you gon' ride on the powers of be Well, I'm finna ride with you, take me home in your little fucking love, fucking drink liquor And help the damn revolution come quicker Laugh, love, fucking drink liquor Help make a revolution. I'm here to laugh, love, fucking drink liquor, and help the damn revolution come quicker. Laugh, love, fucking drink liquor, and maybe make a revolution. And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio chatting with Arun Gupta. Uh, again, Arun's work is top-notch. you got to find it wherever it is. Most recently, we've been talking about his recent piece in these times. Uh, please do follow Arun, support him. He's also on Patreon. I would recommend going to Patreon and supporting his work there. Uh, now, Arun, before the break, we were talking about the um, – migrant workers and the issues related to that. And that, of course, is something that you've been working on professionally in, in recent weeks. But I also saw you posting on social media about another issue that I find to be really important to discuss and to discuss publicly. And that has to do with the 
chaotic nature of the kind of uprisings that we're seeing and specifically the kind of rumor mongering that often happens rumors spreading like wildfire rumors of this action or that action this group coming or this group uh you know agitating or whatever it is talk to me a little bit about your experiences you've reported on the far right quite a bit you've reported on a lot of these sorts of issues uh talk to me about that and how that's relevant to what we're going through right now i definitely could i just do one quick follow-up to the farm worker stuff we were just talking about? Oh, yeah. sure. The yeah. reason, because I said no one's going to starve. Um, yeah, it's just like starvation is when you have like just utter complete breakdown and famine. But we're seeing this massive rise in food insecurity. Uh, it's estimated that, you know, 54, Ameri- 54 million Americans are, are, are food insecure now because we've seen this complete breakdown in food supply chains. And, you know, with kids home from school, you know, the biggest provider of uh, meals in this country is not McDonald's. It's the school breakfast and lunch program. And there's millions of children who they were getting one or the only two meals they would eat a day at school. And that is now descended into complete chaos. So it's estimated that one third of African-American children may be now food insecure, which is going hungry. And I was just talking to a friend who's that's happening to um, some uh, relatives of his girlfriends that he knows that, you know, it's just like these kids may go an entire day without food, which which is just an utter tragedy in a country that uh, children are, are going hungry. And this, of course, you know, it just doesn't affect you psychologically. It stunts your growth, stunts your mental development. And, you know, this is just a real tragedy in the to see this happening in the richest uh, country society in human history. But on the question you asked about rumor mongering, yeah, so there's what's what's been going on uh, is the moment the uh, unrest started in Minneapolis, we started to see this narrative spinning out. And there are two different narratives about the nature of these protests, of course, from Trump and the right wing Fox News and kind of these like what I call fashy propagandists on on Twitter. I'm not even going to name them to give them any um, uh, more support is to Uh, say, like, this is, you know, uh, violent Antifa, and and even that, you know, like, Antifa has all these, there's like one lunatic um, uh, who has a pretty big following, who's just like, uh, uh, Antifa, anti-fascists have all these hundreds of cells, and, you know, this is their plan for revolution, which is, of course, um, absurd in so many ways. One is just like, Antifa is not an organization, um, and it's incredibly decentralized. And secondly, if you have any familiar with uh, 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 anarchism in America, and a lot of them are brave, a lot of them are great, but uh, organization is not their strong point, let's be honest. Um, So the idea that there's like this national organized uh, movement that is going to like um, engage in revolution against the U.S. government is is just, it's a total uh, fascistic lie to justify a crackdown. Now we see also this uh, other narrative 
that's coming from Democrats, which is um, so we've seen the mayors of Minneapolis and St. Paul and the um, Minnesota state governor, all Democrats. And this has been amplified by, by I think, some really just reprehensible media figures like uh, Joy Ann Reed. Uh, she's been uh, she's who I think is a pretty dishonest uh, figure over at uh, MS uh, uh, NBC um, that uh, it's basically at first, I mean, it, it was just, it was so absurd. It's just like uh, it's white anarchists, white nationalists, drug cartels and foreign elements. Um, like within like a day or two, the mayor of uh, Minneapolis was blaming the unrest there on that. And it's just like, oh, really? Right. Okay. That's like, that's, that's quite a hodgepodge. And the mayor of uh, St. Paul said something similar. And then he walked it back. You know, he said 80% were out of state. And then reporters, and thankfully there are still a few news organizations left, went and checked uh, the uh, booking records at the jails there. And 83% were in state of, of the arrests. And uh, um, so he is just like, oh, the cops, like, you know, gave me incorrect information. And it's just like, no, this is cop again. Right. You know, the police use psyops. They use military psychological operations against uh, the people who live in this country. And, you know, the defense secretary, um, Trump's defense secretary, Esper, slipped and uh, basically admitted this. He referred to dominating the battle space. Right. So, oh, so we are the enemy now. They and, you know, to go back to this whole war on terror thing that they actually think like we're insurgents and now they're trying to so the pentagon tried to portray the homegrown resistance in iraq from the beginning it's only later where you start to get uh the uh islam uh, islamist uh, militants uh, who come in um they from the beginning started to call them um AIF. They even like would just refer to them as an acronym, uh, anti-Iraqi forces. And it just like, I mean, just the absurd irony of just like, you're the invading foreigners from 10,000 miles away who know nothing about the language, who know nothing about the culture, culture, who uh, uh, illegally bombed and invaded this country. And you're calling the people who live here who are resisting the anti-Iraqi forces. And it's pretty much the same way with the cops. Like, look, who are the white nationalists? They're the police, okay? The the police department, they're either, like often they're, they're um, explicit white nationalists. For instance, in the Portland Police Department, there's been this controversy for years that one of the top officials is an outright neo-Nazi. Um, the uh, Captain uh, Kruger, I think, uh, you know, which is a high-ranking official in a police department. He was caught uh, uh, creating this Nazi memorial to fallen SS soldiers. He was nailing up plaques to trees in a park in, in Portland. And not only was... Uh, um, his record expunged uh, the city ended up like paying him ten thousand dollars and promoting him you know and it's just like but a lot of cops are basically like soft white nationalists right they see as we talk is their job is is to rule the color line they may not have like you know an identity europa or you know an aryan nation uh, tattoo um but there's there's still very much uh, uh 
enthralled with the ideology of white nationalism. Uh, they come from outside the city. They don't live in these cities. Um, so if you want to talk about outside extremists uh, uh, who are committing the violence, it's it's the cops. And, you know, we've just seen this absolutely, just all these videos of just like horrifying violence. You know, there's now over a hundred documented cases of journalists being attacked. There are dozens of, of videos where cops are outright attacking journalists. Then you see these videos where cops are shooting people point blank in the face with less uh, lethal um, uh, munitions. And the reason they're less lethal is because they're less lethal than bullets, but they can still kill. So they very much view the people as the enemy. But the problem is, is we have the Democrats who are now promoting this propaganda that, oh, there's all these like infiltrators and white nationalists and white anarchists. And it's just like, first of all, anarchists have as much reason as anyone to hate the cops, right? Cops brutalize uh, anarchists. They brutalize Antifa. Um, uh, Secondly, you know, it's just like, you know, so some buildings are getting burned. So what? I don't care if 10,000 Targets and Louis Vuitton stores and, you know, Sprint uh, mobile uh, stores go up in flames. Uh, they matter less than uh, one black person, George Floyd, uh, being killed. You know, property is not the, the the same as people. So, you know, let, let's make it clear um, what's, what's going on here. Um, you know, then let's deal with the thing about white nationalists. So there's a lot of misinformation. And I've been like, you know, talking to a lot of people who make these wild claims about like white nationalists, especially in Minneapolis, um, that there's like, you know, they're... Uh, you know, people are like they're riding around and they're shooting people and burning POC owned businesses. And as soon as I start to say, like, okay, where's the evidence for this? Um, they immediately start to backpedal. And so there's one guy who like made that specific claim that white nationalists are shooting people and uh, uh, burning down POC businesses. And after a series of back and forth, what he finally uh, just like, what did you see? Don't tell me what stories you heard. What exactly did you see? He's like, well, I saw some uh, uh, dudes lounging in a pickup with a 3% or bumper sticker, which is this white nationalist uh, militia. And then he is like, and I saw like uh, four pr- Proud Boys. They had the Fred Perry uh, polo shirts on, slow rolling down the street, uh, harassing uh, some black youth. And I'm like, okay that you realize that's not like shooting people or burning down businesses. And and I've done this a number of times now, like people will um, make these wild claims. But once you start to like, you know, like, what did you see? What exactly did you see? Describe it. You know, don't give me your interpretation. Just tell me what actually you saw. They, those claims start to fall apart. And this is why reporting really matters. This is what reporters do. It's just like, you have to have verification. You just, and I see so many people, including some journalists who are just like going on hearsay and stories. And I'm just like, this is really irresponsible. This is, this is really dangerous because what you're 
you're doing is you're turning the movement against itself. And, you know, if you're like going on about outside agitators and outside extremists, I'm like, you realize you don't sound that different from Southern segregationist sheriffs who are like outside agitators and extremists or stirring up our Negro population. You know, it's just like, no. People have every reason to revolt. And so what if they're burning down shit? You know, this system has completely failed them. Capitalism has completely failed them. Of course they're going to be pissed off. And let's be real also. My neighborhood, you know, in lower Manhattan, I, uh, you know, there's been tons of looting. And it's like brown and black kids. And it's just like these kids are enculturated in consumer capitalism Everything they see is about like getting luxury goods, you know, like getting nice stuff. And before, you know, it was like they might have dreams of that, but it was like, you know, it was out of their grasp. Now with complete economic collapse, you know, their future before was pretty tenuous. It was probably going to be some crappy service sector job. Now they don't have any future. Now they're seeing their elder die. Let's not forget African-Americans are dying at 2.4 times the rate of white Americans. So they're seeing, you know, their grandparents uh, uh, dying from infection. Their their mothers and, and fathers and aunts and uncles have to go to their essential jobs and, and are dying. They've been es- essentially in prison at, at home for once. For months, they went to crappy schools, and now, you know, even if they can get online, uh, it's probably just a complete and utter joke now. Um, not like they had great in person schooling before. So, of course, there's going to be a social explosion, and people are also going to act out. You know, there's this um, article in the New York Times, I think, that this quote from this guy summed it up so well, you know, it it was that he said like, you know, people are doing stuff they never dreamed they could do before in terms of the looting. And of course, you know, if you don't think that kids are going to like want to loot, you've never been a kid and you also don't know the reality of what it's like to be a working class, you know, brown or black kid in, in a city. And the funny thing is the person they quoted was himself a security guard and was on top of that, he was looting as well. So, I mean, it's just like, look, if I was like 17 year old, hell yeah, I'd be uh, looting shit. You know, I'd, I'd be burning down shit. Who wouldn't, you know? One of the interesting things to me, though, Arun, is that when you start insisting, um, you know, all right, so white supremacists are infiltrating the protests, all right, provide me some evidence, and then this back and forth starts to happen, what happens is this sort of defensive posture goes up where it's almost like because you're demanding evidence as if you're siding with white supremacists. It's like, how dare you? It's like, what are you trying to do here when you're saying, well, I'm a journalist and I want to separate fact from rumor? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it is funny. Like, I get almost the same responses. People will come into the conversation, they'll make they'll put these lengthy comments making all these wild claims and I'll just be like, can you send me some evidence? And then they'll get like all huffy and be like, Oh, I'm not going to do your work for you. I'm like, dude, you're the one who's making these wild coming to me, making these wild claims. Okay. Don't get all pissy with me just because now I'm asking you to back it up and you immediately start backpedaling. And they're like, well, there's stories I heard. 
And it's funny because someone sent me this really lengthy report and you could tell it's from people who were like trying to do the right thing. And I, I, you know, let's, let's not, um, uh, you know, dance around the issue. There's so many white people who are confusing like allyship and therapy culture with like um, strategic organizing, right? And so it's just like, they want to affirm people of color, right? So it's just like, if someone tells them a story, it then, you know, it's like, I believe survivors, man. So it's just like, I believe you. People get swept up. People's memories are completely unreliable, especially in these moments. And they, there's also just absurd uh, misinterpretations. Like everyone's like probably seen the Umbrella Man videos in Minneapolis, where it's this guy who's dressed all in black. He's got a bath gas mask he has an umbrella and he's smashing windows at an auto store and people are like what are you doing what are you doing and he's like trying to get away from him he tries to snatch the phone and it's just like oh this is so suspicious and it's just like uh no i've been in the middle of plenty of riots before usually they were police riots but you know there 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 was almost always like a significant black block or antifa contingent there and uh it it's just like yeah if you're out there to like you know because you want to smash it up and you want to like take it to capitalism and it's just like okay i think that's generally a little juvenile but i think what we're seeing now hey we can understand why so many people see it as justified you know interestingly a news what we poll found 54% of the American public said burning down the Minneapolis uh, precinct station was justified. A majority of Americans agree that burning down a police station is justified. So you can imagine, I've never seen so many people who who have been like, sure, you know, loot all those luxury goods stores why why yeah, why totally. the hell not you know i'm not going out and doing it i'm not telling anyone to do it i'm just explaining the psychology behind it as com- completely understandable and and so you know and it, it kind of works these two ways that you have a lot of white progressives who still don't see black and brown people as fully complex human beings that one you have these kids who they're young they're full of hormones they're full of rage and they can do smart righteous stuff and they can also do juvenile destructive stuff right and often in the same person within a few minutes of each other right this is a moment where everything is starts to become possible so it's very unpredictable very chaotic and 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 then at the same time, you know, this kind of fetishization, it's just like, I can tell you, it doesn't matter who you are, what, what your race is, what your class is, if you're in the middle of a riot, your memory becomes really notoriously unreliable. And that's what reporters do is they hunt this stuff down and they need verification. And so, you know, because I've been reporting on the far right now for five years, I know most of the really good reporters who work at the national media outlets, you know, like Guardian, like uh, BuzzFeed, like HuffPo, you know, or Southern Poverty Law Center or Political Research Associates who are out in the streets looking for 
evidence of this. It would be a major scoop for any one of them to find that white nationalists are behind the violence. And let's make also a very important distinction here. Yes, white nationalists are out there, and we've got lots of evidence of this, right? We've got evidence of, you know, all these boogaloo boys. These are the ones who are, like, you know, promoting, like, the Civil War uh, meme. A lot of them are LARPers, you know, live-action role players. So they show up in their Hawaiian shirts, they show up with all their guns and gear, and they take selfies, and they post them. There's also a lot of shit posting going on. People are trying to incite stuff or just, you know, attack, troll the left, antagonize the left, or put out disinformation. And that's even without foreign and domestic uh, intelligence agencies uh, uh, trying to basically create chaos as well. So yeah, just like this guy in Minneapolis did see with his eyes, you know, three percenters and proud boys, sure, we know they are showing up, but are they behind violence and shooting? We have lone wolves, right? So there's the guy with the bow and arrow. I believe that was, what, San Diego? Um, You have uh, this guy in uh, Omaha who killed a young black man. He was a Trump campaign volunteer, and he was uh, allegedly a notorious racist and uh, transphobic. And he's already been cleared of those charges. Um, You had the Trump... This this guy who dressed up as a National Guard soldier with all the gear who was uh, turned in by people when they noticed he didn't have the standard issue mm-hmm. gun. Mm-hmm. So I mean, you know, but what's that? I mean, some some twenty eight year old who dressed up in right. Uniform? And this is a thing. Like we see a lot of lone wolf stuff. Like my concern during the Trump years is, you know, Trump is a stochastic uh, stochastic terrorist. That means what he does is he amplifies through his rhetoric um, general uh, level of uh, uh, white nationalist terrorism. And we've seen this. So stochastic terrorism means that no individual event is predictable, but the generalized trend is predictable. So we see kind of the background or kind of like the number of terrorist incidents under him have increased dramatically. But what allows him to be like, you know, uh, absolve himself is just like, oh, I didn't, you know, tell, you know, Caesar Sayoc, the MAGA bomber, to send, you know, bombs to uh, CNN. I didn't tell Robert Bowers to go shoot up the Tree of Life synagogue and kill 11 people. I didn't tell uh, Patrick Cruzius uh, to kill, you know, I think 25 Hispanic people at the Walmart in El Paso. But they were all basing what they did on Trump's words. You know, like Patrick Cruzius's manifesto, it sounded like a Trump campaign rally or, you know, Robert Bowers, he was uh, blaming uh, Hias, uh, uh, which is this uh, Jewish refugee uh, aid group, for bringing in uh, 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 refugees when Trump was ranting about the caravans in October of 2018 before the midterm election. And, you know, on and on and on. Like, you know, I've been tracking dozens of these cases, you know, so you can't blame any particular one. It's these lone wolves. Similarly, we see white nationalists out there. We see these lone wolf attacks. What I've been worried about is more of organized pogroms. Now, in the last 
few days, we are starting to get like evidence of like, so someone has sent me photos from Albuquerque, New Mexico of a basically armed vigilant, you know, gang of threepers, you know, they're kind of like appointing themselves as like defenders of business. Um, there's also an incident in Oregon, like Oregon is a really goddamn racist state. (laughs) Um, someone again sent me a news article where hundreds of locals, and this is more the problem, right? It becomes more this kind of like classic, you know, 19th century racist mobs or 20th century racist white mobs, right? Tulsa, Oklahoma, the, the 99th anniversary was just a couple of days ago, a day or two ago, I believe, in, in early June, um, the destruction of Black Wall Street, where 300 African Americans were killed, and the, it was bombed by the U.S. Army Air Force, and uh, the survivors were put into a concentration camp. This was a pogrom by the white citizens. So there's all these videos of these meatheads in Philadelphia in Fishtown, which is this hardcore white, which has spent time in white working class neighborhoods, super racist of all these meatheads walking around with baseball bats, you know, and they actually went up to the cops to offer their support, you know, to protect them from uh, the, the uh, Black Lives Matter thugs. And the cops are just like, you know, we don't need your help. This is the other thing that people often don't get. And I would recommend, you know, um, uh, there's like a a few people on the left who do really good work on policing. Um, Christian Williams, uh, Stuart, uh, um, damn, is it Schaefer, I think, and Alex Vitale. They've all written books. They're all leftists who've uh, written these scholarly works uh, about policing. And they would all tell you the same thing. It's just like, Police like their monopoly on the use of force. They're not going to give it up to these meatheads. Now, they'll overlook a lot of violence, um, they'll, especially if they're attacking the left. They'll turn a blind eye to it. Um, there's also like documented cases in the last few years of like um, episodic uh, collaboration um, and of course police force white nationalists explicit white nationalists often join police forces and again the cops uh, don't really care uh, about that um, but the idea that they're going to let these uh, white nationalists um, kind of on their turf is ridiculous because they um, are very protective of their own turf, um, you know, and they don't want anyone on it and including white nationalists, even when they're sympathetic to them. I've, 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 you know, seen this going on when I visit Portland, like repeatedly, you know, the cops here are very sympathetic to the like kind of uh, fascist light Patriot Prayer and Proud Boys here, and they give them a lot of free reign, but they're not going to let them like, you know, engage in policing functions themselves. Right. Uh, I, I agree with that. Although, um, you know, some of the, some of the more troubling videos for me, at least with regard to that issue, you know, you saw in these, um, you know, open up Michigan protests where these militia guys or wannabe militia guys, or maybe both, uh, turned out with basically, you know, burning the governor and effigy, holding up nooses, threatening to lynch the governor and so forth. Um, you know, in that in that episode, you saw, and I mean, there's a video circulating on YouTube. You saw the local sheriff. I mean, an elected official who I, I suppose is probably one of the most prominent people in the county there, 
openly on the stage standing with them as if he is one of them, as if they are one in the same entity, basically saying these guys are the defenders of the Second Amendment and nobody's going to come and take away our Second Amendment. Now, I'm not suggesting that means that the militia people are doing policing functions. What I'm saying is that when the line becomes blurred in that way and that becomes uh, sort of a new normal, I do think that you begin to see, uh, let's say, a very sort of uh, permeable membrane between those two. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like after the Patrick Cruz's murders, like I interviewed Alex Vitale about this and, you know, and Christian Williams both, and they, they both said the same thing. It's just like, look, it's this kind of classic that um, the state, um, the feds just really turned a blind eye um, to uh, far-right uh, uh, violence until it crosses a line. With the left, they go after them much earlier, but if it if it if the political heat becomes too much, they will eventually take action, right? You know, so with the civil rights movement, the Mississippi Freedom Democratics uh, uh, summer, with the murder of uh, Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman, finally the FBI came in, right, and started, like, cracking down to a degree on on the Klan um, uh, murders. With Timothy McVeigh and the militia movement, after, you know, you blow up a federal building and kill, um, you know, I, what, what, whatever it was, around 150 people. Then finally the feds come in and crack down on the militia. Similarly, it's after Patrick Cruz's where we finally see DHS and the FBI saying the number one threat is, is white nationalist extremists. And of course, you know, in the last decade or the last something like 15 years, there's, I think it's like 110 murders by white nationalists and none by anarchists. But, you know, to Trump, the white nationalists are good people, which he tweeted out. And, and you know, the anarchists are uh, uh, domestic terrorists, which, of course, is meaningless. But it does signify that uh, there's going to be a lot more like FBI resources probably devoted uh, to going after um, anarchists. And I will warn people, be very careful of what you say on social media. People are already getting indicted for shit they're putting up on, on social media. Um, um, so, you know, it's just like, don't be an idiot um, and, and say stuff um, on social media. Don't leave any digital footprints because it doesn't matter even like if it's legal what you're saying. If they have enough leeway, they'll try and go after you. Um, so, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think it's it's pretty clear. Like, I mean, sheriffs are also their, their own kind of special thing. Um just the whole both mythology and, and kind of as an institution, they're elected. Um, every county has a sheriff. They have all this power. 83% of sheriffs are white men. So it is very much as kind of like fascistic, um, you know, in terms of like race and gender and masculinity and this like violence and force. And yeah, and you see all these constitutional sheriffs and it's just like, these guys are like violating the law and you know, you're meanwhile buddy buddy with them and then peaceful protesters are getting shot in the face. Right. They're all the graduates of the Arpeo school of yeah, rights yeah, advocacy. Yeah. yeah.
Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, last couple of minutes that we have, I want to talk a little bit about uh, food. Um, I love it. You love it. Let's talk about it. Apocalypse Chow cooking in end times. It's a lot of fun. Uh, You've got this series going on Instagram. It's, it really, I think is, it's a lot of fun for a time when we're quarantined, when we're thinking about how do we continue to make food at home and keep it interesting and keep it fun when we're not able to go out in the way that we might normally do it, or we might not even be able to get all the ingredients we might normally get. Talk to me about Apocalypse Chow, why you're doing it and uh, how it's going. So I'm doing like a very different cooking show. So for folks who don't know, I'm actually a trained chef. I'm trained in classical French cuisine. I cook professionally uh, in New York City in the, the white tablecloth restaurants. Uh, if anyone remembers Savoy, which was often called the Chez Panisse of the E. Chez Panisse is the Alice Waters groundbreaking restaurant in uh, Berkeley, California. That's kind of considered to like um, uh, be at the cutting edge of like the whole new wave of American cuisine, the California cuisine, which is this like nouvelle cuisine, light, fresh, uh, seasonal and she's considered to have helped redefine fine dining. Savoy, the uh, chef operator there, Peter Hoffman, was he uh, played a similar role in, in New York City in terms of like really introducing like green market, uh, um, uh, fresh, uh, locally produced food into um, uh, the restaurant scene starting in the 1980s. And so I've been doing this cooking show where I do recipes, but I also do all this history and anthropology and science, like explaining, you know, the backgrounds, because, you know, this is actually, I mean, we could do a whole show about this. I mean, it's utterly fascinating. I was just stuffing my face with some uh, homemade granola because we've been talking so long and I needed uh, some food. Um, I have never done anything in the, like this in my life. For three months now, every single morsel of food I have eaten has been made in the home, right? You know, and, you know, we'll still go shopping or now we're getting a, a food delivery, something I never said I would do uh, in my life because I want to go pick my own fruits and vegetables. But there's also a realization, well, supermarkets, you know, are potentially, you know, hot spots of, of infection and, you know, if you're only going shopping, like I've, I was only going shopping every two weeks and I'd end up spending like an hour and a half in the supermarket because I, we needed so much shit. And it's just like, if you're having every single bit of food, right. And it's just like, you know, I'm sure I'm like a lot of people like, you know, my drinking's gone up a little <laughs> in the last few months. Like it's a, it's a nice, nice way to take the edge off at, uh, at night. Um, you know, you're buying a lot of crap. And so, you know, yeah, maybe sometimes we'll have like ramen or mac and cheese, but I'm not, I really don't like the taste of them. And the thing is, we've been deprived of so much that the last thing I want to start doing is depriving myself of good food. And I love restaurants, but I can no longer going out go out. And so I've got like, you know, years of of professional cooking skill and then decades of doing it in the house and including professional catering and, you know, teaching myself all sorts of stuff. And I liken it to being like a studio musician, like, 
you know, these veteran studio musicians who I know, like, they can pick up all, you know, guitar players who can pick up all sorts of different types of string instruments and start playing them because they know different genres, they know different techniques. And so, like, I can pick up new cuisines. And so, like, I'm like, you know, you start to get bored of having the same thing. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'll make like a Thai green curry um, uh, from scratch. Or like I started making tortillas from scratch because like I really did like uh, supermarket tortillas. And when we went down to Mexico um, for a week um, uh, uh, to Brownsville, uh, Texas, and then on the Mexico side, Matamoros, we were eating this delicious uh, Mexican food, including homemade tortillas. And I'm like, damn, these tortillas are good. And so I'm like, I bet you they're not too hard to make because I make my own chapatis and naan and roti, you know, all the time. And so I started making and I'm like, wow, these are so much better than the store-bought tortillas. But now it's just like... Um, if I want something, I have to make it. And it's just like, oh my God, everything is such a pain in the ass now. So it's just like, if I want more tortillas, I got to make more tortillas. If I want granola, I got to make more granola. If I want, you know, like, you know, hey, I'm like, uh, I, I made like real beef bourguignon recently. And it's just like absolutely delicious. But it's a lot of work and it had to like cook for eight hours. And, you know, luckily I made two gallons. And so like I, I packed my freezer, but it's just like uh, this one, I, um, I've read like hundreds of books in, in the last few years about food, history of food, you know, anthropology, especially about American cuisine. And there's this one history, uh, you know, where it's covering like a 19th century and it's talking about just like, just, all the work that women would have to do and they were basically chained to their stoves especially those who worked on the kind of the homesteads you know who um you know just like cooking themselves to death and and one of the authors was talking about you know like how the process for making potted meats now you'll still see cans of potted meat this used to be a big thing in in uh, a pre-industrial age where you take meat you cook them down you basically grind them and then you pack them in little crock pots and you cover them with fat because they could last for months that way and just like everything is just all this manual labor and the author is just like you know describing it and saying you know how much of a bother this was and then the author says in the side it's just like well everything was a bother in those days and so for the last three months i've been kind of living this you know like you know Right now, I have sourdough bread going, you know, because it's just like we, we get sliced bread, right? But if you want like some decent, you know, artisanal bread, I'm not, you know, before I would shop at like, you know, probably 15 or 20 different stores, you know, if, if I want like, you know, to make like some Japanese food, I'm going to the Japanese uh, supermarket. If I want Korean food, I'm going to the Korean supermarket, you know, for Indian food and on and on, or I'm going to this specialty store or that specialty store. Now, maybe I'll go to one store like uh, two times in a month. And even that I've been cutting back on. So, you know, it means you uh, end up doing without a lot of stuff or you have to make it yourself. And so it's really to me kind of fascinating 
because we're kind of living almost this like all these different ages um, of our lives, right? You know, in, in terms of like, you know, we're now much more conscious about food waste, right? Before it's just like, oh, that broccoli is kind of getting yellow before we would throw it out. And now it's just like, well, you know, maybe just trim it a little because the longer you make it last, it means the less often you have to get groceries. You know, you have to take the risk. And this, of course, used to be the story for humanity that going out to get your own food, uh, especially hunter and gatherers, was, was a risky endeavor. Or, you know, like, you know, the fact that you're now eating all your leftovers, even when they're starting to go off a little. Like my parents would do that in their whole generation. You know, my parents grew up in India, but kind of that older generation who, Who's, uh, who the, um, the grandparents went through the Great Depression, you know, they handed down this whole ethos of you don't waste anything. Or like another thing I found myself doing is like, now for the first time ever, like I'm saving bottles, I'm saving plastic bags, not because of, you know, some neuroses, but it's just like, oh, I can actually use this for stuff like, you know... I was I've been worried like a lot of people about disruptions in the food supply chain. So now I've got like 50 pounds of rice and 40 pounds of flour. And it's just like, oh, where the hell do I store all this stuff? So, you know, it's it's definitely, you know, it feels like, you know, I'm living like these periods from like the 1970s and 1930s, you know, the 1880s, you know, even, you know, kind of like ancient times, like, you know, making all the various flatbreads, you know, trying to figure out how do I store stuff, you know, like how do I keep potatoes and onions around for like a month or more, you know, or having like, you know, different types of squash that is almost like, hey, these will last a couple of months, um, you know, and it becomes like now you're trying to manage all these different food supplies and it's, you have to think like, oh, I need to take like this meat out of the freezer like a couple days in advance, even though we got food in the fridge we're going to be running out and you know it's it's definitely a very different way of relating to food than we're used to in the past and I, I think it's it's useful in a lot of ways because you know it makes us think of our interconnectedness and it also makes us realize how much we waste absolutely and I think that part of what I really like about Apocalypse Chow in the episodes that I've watched is that it's not, it's not just that you're talking about all of these issues and that you do provide a quick snapshot of some of the history of some of the items that you're talking about, where it comes from, maybe, you know, what it symbolizes or whatever. But it's also that what you're really doing ultimately is you're making something fun that for a lot of us has become a daily obstacle. You know, uh, uh, we like cooking at home. We like authentic, you know, home food, but we don't like necessarily being forced into doing it every single day with no other option. And so when I watch your show, I'm like, oh, fuck yeah, I can make some Korean food. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. You know I, I mean, mean, you know. It's, 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 it is, it is a chore, but it is fun also. And it's also, you know, a great, loving, nurturing thing you can do for the people around you. And this is why, like, sure, I can, like, I realize I can get all sorts of, like, we could order tons of processed food, you know, but it's just like, you know what? 
it's just like I can't go out hang out at bars. I can't go to restaurants. I can't see live music. I, I can't, you know, I can't go to protests. I'm not going to these protests because I don't want to catch coronavirus. I mean, I kind of have been going out and like peering from the edges, you know, from, you know, a couple hundred yards away. Um, and it's very much young people, overwhelmingly young people. You know, because they're much more able to take this risk uh, uh, than I am. Um, but when you get deprived of so much, you know, uh, you want to still have like some pleasure in your life. And so that's why, like, I think it's it's important um, to be able to, you know, still have and enjoy uh, good food. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad I kept this conversation to the 40 minutes that I promised you. Is- <laughs> An hour and 20 in this recording. Uh, um, uh, check out Apocalypse Chow on Instagram. Follow Arun there. Follow Arun on Twitter. Arun Indy, uh, A-R-U-N-I-N-D-Y. Um, you can also find his work on Counterpunch as well as all the other places that he's publishing. Arun, thanks again as always for your work and for coming and talking with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Listeners, thank you as always, and we'll chat again next week.